from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, I am really delighted to have an old friend, a guest who I've known for years and have admired for years, He is the operating executive of the Carlyle Group, which is a global investment firm. He's chairman of the board of counselors of McClarty Associates, which is an international consulting firm. Before that, he served for five years as the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. But his record in the military before that was amazing. 37 years serving the United States all around the world, led the NATO alliance and global operations from 2009 to 2013. He was the Supreme Allied Commander with responsibility for Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, Syria, counter-piracy and cybersecurity. He also before that served as commander of the U.S. Southern Command with responsibility for all military operations in Latin America from 2006 to 2009. I first met him when he was the Chief Military Advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He has earned more than 50 medals, including 28 from foreign nations in his 37-year military career. And he recently wrote a book, which I found so important that I promptly contacted him and asked if we couldn't do a podcast because he combines an interesting novel, which I recommend just as a novel, but he combines insights and warnings for America based on his lifetime career. It's entitled 2034 a novel of the next world war. And I think given that background, you can see the kind of credentials he brings to bear. Admiral James Stavridis, Jim Stavridis to me, is a terrific patriot, 
a remarkably intellectual person with a very broad range of knowledge. And I just want you to know, Jim, that I'm really glad that you would take the time to join us for this podcast. Mr. Speaker, it's a pleasure. And I think I've had the privilege of knowing you personally for close to two decades. Met you in the office of Don Rumsfeld, a mutual friend of ours and a mentor to me. And it has been nothing but a pleasure to work with you on so many issues of international security over the years. So thanks for having me on, sir. Could you share with us sort of as a starting point for your remarkable career in the Navy, your paternal grandfather's immigration and how that affected you? My grandparents came from what is today Turkey. They were ethnically Greek, but lived outside of the city of Izmir. At the time, it was called Smyrna. It was part of the Ottoman Empire in the first part of the last century. And in 1922, after a series of attacks back and forth between the Greeks and the Turks, the Turkish army burned the city of Smyrna. And my grandmother literally stood on the quay wall as the city burned behind her, was rescued by Greek fishermen. She and my grandfather ended up in Athens together and took ship to the United States. So, Mr. Speaker, I've had the extraordinary privilege of going to Ellis Island and seeing the records of my grandparents become American citizens in the 1920s. And then to complete the story, I went back to Turkey 70 years later. So 1922, my grandparents come here on a ship. In 1992, roughly, I go back in command of a billion-dollar U.S. warship. So you think what happened in the middle from 1922 to 1992, those 70 years, America happened. And I'm very proud to be the son of immigrants and to have sailed back to the place they debarked from to come here to the United States. That must have been quite an emotional moment to come into harbor and reflect on your grandparents and realize that you commanded the most powerful single ship in the region. It's just amazing. Indeed, it was deeply emotional, and it kind of repeated itself a few years later when I improbably became a four-star admiral, probably due to a computer error of some kind, but became Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. What was the first capital I visited? It was Ankara. And I went there because I was well aware that the Turks were well aware of my background. They knew that my grandparents had been driven out of Turkey as refugees. And I think they might have felt as a Greek American that I carried bitterness toward Turkey. I do not. As you and I both understand, we need to comprehend the past but not be imprisoned by it. And so I went to Ankara and enjoyed a very warm relationship for my four years, particularly with the Minister of Defense, later Prime Minister, Ahmed Davutoglu. And I'll conclude the story by saying when I finished my time as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO in 2013, then Prime Minister Davutoglu gave me as a parting gift, not a, you know, a NATO clock radio or something, but he gave me a beautiful book of vintage postcards of the city of Smyrna from the days in which my grandparents lived in the city. Oh, wow. That would really be a sort of family heirloom you'd treasure the rest of your life. 
Indeed. And both my girls, I have two daughters in their early 30s, are both very proud of that Greek-American heritage. Both have visited Greece multiple times, and it's a big part of our lives, being Greek-American. When Costa was the ambassador to the Vatican, we had the privilege of getting to know the dean of the ambassadors, who is the ambassador from Cyprus. And listening to him talk and his concerns and his whole attitude was a very powerful part of our experience in Rome. Let me ask you, you got so many awards. I mean, the Navy League's John Paul Jones Award for Inspirational Leadership. You were asked to lead the Navy's think tank for innovation right after the 9-11 attack. You served as the first Navy admiral to be Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. I wasn't surprised that you were picked to do that just because you're so darn smart, but it really was a break with tradition to have what had historically been a largely ground forces and occasionally air force assignment suddenly have this guy step off the ship and into the headquarters at Mons. What was your sense as you tried to hold together the alliance and had to deal with all those different countries? What was your general experience of that kind of very complicated multilateral relationship? Well, I was lucky, and you know this, Mr. Speaker, because Don Rumsfeld had pulled me up from three-star rank, made me a four-star, and sent me to command U.S. Southern Command. I was also the first admiral to command Southern Command. And Southern Command is almost a perfect training ground to get ready to go to a larger combatant command like U.S. European Command slant Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. So as Commander U.S. Southern Commander, and I discussed this with you at the time, we needed to bring a different tool set to working with that region that included not only the capability to conduct warfighting operations, but humanitarian operations, medical diplomacy, cultural engagement, strategic communications to explain the role of the United States. All of those tools working with 30 plus nations south of the United States prepared me to then step into the stage at NATO, which is a very complex one. At that moment, there were 28 nations in NATO. Today, there are 30. And each of them are fundamentally different. Really, no two of any of the NATO members have even roughly similar backgrounds, the history, the language, the culture. And you have to be respectful of it. You have to be prepared to come to the table at NATO and recognize that even the smallest nation, Iceland, for example, Luxembourg, can say to the alliance, well, we don't agree with that. This is consensus driven. And therefore, I had to learn very quickly how to try and bring these nations together at the military level. And of course, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense were doing it at the cabinet level, and the president was doing it at the head of government level. But all of us, if we were going to make NATO work in Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, piracy, cyber, and all of those venues, we had to do it by consensus. We had to bring our allies with us. And that was the central focus of what I did for four years. Now, NATO, in a sense, became schizophrenic in a sense that, on the one hand, it was created to contain the Soviet empire and was really focused on winning the central front in Germany and being able to sustain the lines of communications and logistics across the Atlantic. But it's now also taken roles in almost, a, I'd say, a third of the world in campaigns like 
Iraq, or Afghanistan. To what extent does that duality make things more complicated in trying to get an effective NATO military? It raises the bar considerably. And in addition to Iraq and Afghanistan, which you mentioned, there was the intervention in Libya. And each of those are a different fact set that we could walk through. But the principal reason for doing them, and I think it's worth answering that question, is that all of those venues presented real impact, real threat to the member states of the alliance. And Turkey and its borders with Syria and Iraq were threatened by terrorism. Obviously, we were in Afghanistan because of an attack 9-11 against the United States. We were in Libya at the request of the United Nations, but also because we wanted to prevent massive waves of refugees coming into the European side of the alliance. So I think there's rationale for all of those particular instances and others as well. But you're right. Duality is the diplomatic word for it. And there are certainly voices who say, nope, NATO should really uh, mind its knitting, should really focus on deterring Russia. And that's certainly a continuous ongoing mission. I would argue the other side of that one and say that the alliance needs to think about where it is threatened in cyber, in the Arctic, from the Middle East. Um, Because if you just sit back in the citadel of Europe, in this case, and wait, you're in a less advantageous position, I would argue, to deter, stop, change those threats at distance. So I'll conclude by saying, you know, you don't want to be ridiculous. I don't think NATO should be launching missions into sub-Saharan Africa or into Brasilia. But on the other hand, I think when there is a proximate threat to the alliance, it's legitimate to take action out of area, if you will. One of those places that you've had intimate knowledge of is Afghanistan, which is now the longest war we've ever fought. And I personally would argue begs to be really thoroughly studied and try to figure out in retrospect were there alternative strategies or alternative techniques that might have yielded a different outcome. But we're now in the process of getting out. And one of two things strikes me. One is you could see the collapse of the pro-Western regime and its replacement by the Taliban. The other is you could imagine the Chinese cutting a deal and coming in as a protector of the government. What's your sense of the risk that we're running? We are running high risk in two dimensions, both of which you touch on. The first is that the Taliban take over completely and the Taliban effectively continue a relationship with al-Qaeda, with the Islamic State. We're right back where we started pre-9-11. I'd say that is a 50-50 chance at this point. On the other side of the coin is the chance that the government remains in power, but that China becomes the patron, perhaps in condominium, Mr. Speaker, with Russia, both of which have borders, roughly, with Afghanistan, which is not a small place. Afghanistan is the size of Texas with a population of 40 million. It's an important strategic location. And so for both of those reasons, neither of which outcome is good for the United States, I have continued to had the view, I think shared by many of my contemporaries, that we should maintain the small footprint we have there now. 
for strategic leverage to keep pressure on the Taliban. You know, there's a reason the Taliban aren't getting in their little SUVs and driving into Kabul and Herat and Kanduz. The reason they're not is because they can't. Because it's not because of 2,500 American troops. It's because of 300,000 Afghan troops. And if we continue to fund the Afghan troops, and I would argue give them a minimal level of training, support, intelligence, aviation, that would be a better outcome than either of the two strategic potentials that you and I just discussed. However, we are where we are. The president has decided to pull the Americans out. NATO will follow. And therefore, what we ought to do is try and counter the strategic scenario of China coming in and taking over. The way we do that is that we become the funders of the Afghan security forces. We have contractors who are capable of doing the kind of training, typically post-military individuals. We have a very strong CIA presence. I don't envy Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, his responsibilities. We have a strong diplomatic component. We try and support the NGOs, and we try and provide a balance to China going forward. Both of those, I think, are going to be very difficult outcomes for us to manage. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. One of the things that strikes me, and you touch upon this to some extent in your novel, we're right now pulling together a map of every port in the world where the Chinese have a major presence. 
and it is a stunning yes. expansion of their reach. It seems to me they're now virtually competitive with us, and not in power projection yet, but in the acquisition of soft power assets literally almost everywhere, including when we were in Italy, they announced, I think, that the three largest ports in Italy were all going to be run by the Chinese. And if that had happened in the Cold War with the Russians, we would have gone crazy, but it was just business as usual and COVID had overwhelmed everything and so forth. But as a Navy guy, how concerned are you about the expansion of Chinese capacity to compete with us in maritime affairs around the planet? Well, you're the one with the PhD in history. And so I know you know who Alfred Thayer Mahan was, the famous naval strategist who roughly 100 years ago, 120 years ago, developed a theory of sea power. And I explored this in depth in a previous book that I wrote called, imaginatively enough, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. Mahan called this. He was absolutely correct that for a global power like the United States is, and China aspires to be, and the United Kingdom of his day was, a critical element is supplies, logistics, control of ports. In those days, coaling stations, ships ran on coal. That idea of linking together a maritime network around the world, backing it up with warships that can then hopscotch where they will, and exerting political influence and diplomatic influence in all of these nations originated with the Brits, was highly developed by the United States in the 20th century, and certainly China has been reading Alfred Thayer Mahan, in my view, and to answer your question, we had to be very concerned about it because it's smart strategy. It worked for us, it'll probably work for them, and we got to get out there and compete. In nominal terms, the Chinese Navy is now larger than ours in a number of ships. But I don't know enough to know whether in capability that that translates yet into an ability to go toe-to-toe with us. But what's your sense about the quality of their ships? And as you project out 10 or 15 years, to what degree are they going to be a genuine peer competitor at maritime control? Let's do the history When I graduated from Annapolis, I would have graded them an F. They were a coastal Navy driving around in rusted out Soviet Union castoffs. By the time I was a one-star admiral around the time of 9-11, they were up at about a C. Today, they are a B. I would score us still an A. Our capabilities exceed those significantly of China. But here's an important point. We are manned, we are deployed, we are trained, we the U.S. Navy, to fight globally. China is becoming better and better and better at that in-close littoral fight in and around the South China Sea, the East China Sea, maybe a little bit expanded beyond what's called the first island chain. But they are bringing more ships of a pretty good quality, not quite as good as ours, but they would outnumber us significantly and it would be in a small constrained area. Now we have other advantages. We have bases, allies, long range air. Our submarines overmatch them significantly. Our satellite systems are better. So I'd call it 
not quite toe-to-toe. If you ask me as a fighting admiral, which fleet would I rather have, I'd take the U.S. fleet. But it's going to be a near-run thing, as the Duke of Wellington said about the Battle of Waterloo. Certainly over the course of the next 10 years as they improve, hence the date of the novel, 2034, that's roughly when I think parity will be achieved militarily by China. You know, it's interesting because this leads me to go in two directions. One, to go back to the Napoleonic Wars, it's Nelson who says numbers annihilate. A lot of our greatest military victories, if you look at at the Israelis or you look at the Royal Navy or you look at some of our cases, is to be able to mass at the key point overwhelming force and therefore you win even though the other guy might have been, in theory, capable of it. The two places it seems to me that we will first encounter this problem are the South China Sea and the Straits of Taiwan. My sense as a civilian observer is that we would have a much harder time in both places than the Navy currently wants to admit. They keep designing clever strategies, but cleverness tends to break down at the point of contact. Are you concerned that if, again, it could rapidly escalate into a nuclear war or a world war of non-nuclear capabilities, but in terms of those two sectors, that they may be able to amass, certainly by 2034, and probably in the Straits of Taiwan even today, overwhelming capacity to at least have area denial. Yes, and don't take my word for it. You know, I retired several years ago. The current commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, the, if you will, the NATO commander of the Pacific is Admiral Phil Davidson, good friend, somebody I've mentored for years. And Phil testified in front of Congress three weeks ago that he foresees a potential conflict, a potential attempt by China to militarily conquer Taiwan within the next six years. Many of my friends who read 2034, a novel of the next world war, have said, hey, Jim, great book. You got everything right, but you got one big thing wrong, the date. It's coming a lot sooner. And to answer your question, yes, can China mass at a specific point? And that will matter. Numbers matter, as Nelson told us. I think it was Marx, this is often ascribed to him anyway, that a quantity has a quality all its own. But let me give you another point to worry about, and that's technology. What about advances in Chinese technology, in artificial intelligence, in cyber, in stealth, in space? And you pulled us back to the Napoleonic Wars. I'm going to take you back another 400 years. Let's go to Agincourt, where a high-tech French force wearing the most capable armor of the day, the -the state-of-the-art technology, goes splashing across a muddy field. This, of course, is immortalized in Henry V by Shakespeare. And they are slaughtered, slaughtered in their numbers by a bunch of English longbowmen. The French had failed to see that their technology, their exquisite technology, had been overtaken. Could that happen? Yeah, and I worry about that more than I do about mass at a given point, although certainly we can worry about both of them. Both of those cautionary tales are explored in 2034. Your book actually led me to go back to the drawing board, if you will, and because the fascinating thing about Agincourt is it is the third 
defeat of French cavalry by the Welsh or English longbow. And all three battles in some ways are very similar. You have very heavy cavalry on the French side. And the social structure of the French system made it impossible to adapt. And I once went back and read all three battles in a short period of time to try to get in my head the parallelisms. And I'm working on a paper that, in fact, was triggered by your book, which is that underneath all this, if you think in the long run beyond, say, a decade, you have to think about the national capabilities, both in terms of technology, procurement, the culture, the education system. And I just had finished reading a six-volume series of novels on the first year in the Pacific in terms of air power. And you look at this period where initially we're at a huge disadvantage, but by the end of the first year, we're beginning to mass our capacity, the ability to train pilots beyond what the Japanese can do, building the P-38 to offset certain advantages that the Zero had as a fighter plane at high altitude, the gradual steady improvement of the B-17 as a weapon delivering mass destruction for that generation's time. But it hit me. I don't know that we could mobilize like that. And I don't know that our education system is producing people capable of being mobilized. And so it strikes me that, in a way, your challenge to the system is actually to rethink the bureaucratic cultures and the way they approach their mindset about this and recognize that that history doesn't necessarily have to follow the way we've been trained. You've got it exactly right. And going back to that World War II moment, let's go to December 7th. And what gets sunk? It's the battleships. That's probably the best thing that could have happened in the sense that it forced us to break the paradigm, grab the carrier force, which was quite small at that point, and luckily not in Pearl Harbor at the time of the attack, and begin to put our focus on air power. And by the time of the Battle of Lady Gulf, late in the war, you see Ray Spruance and Bull Halsey moving air power back and forth, not without miscues, not without mistakes, but it's this overwhelming tide. And it's happened because we have been forced to seize the new, and that was air power. The question, I think, in this 21st century is, what is the new? And it may very well be cyber. And of course, you explored EMP in one of your novels. It may be that cyber is effectively an electromagnetic pulse level weapon that can go at the homeland. But before you would use it in that strategic sense, it may well be used tactically against our forces in the field. And that's a scenario that's explored, as you know, in 2034. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. I'm old enough, I actually used to study Soviet doctrine when they were the major opponent. And their army practiced fighting without radios because their intent was to blanket the battlefield and drown our radios. And we finally had to, in the 1980s, come to a realization that we were relying on systems that were fine in peacetime, but if you actually intended to use them in wartime, they weren't going to work. And I've always been a big fan of Sun Tzu and then of Mao Zedong's rendering of Sun Tzu. And if they got into a real tense situation with us, I would expect their entire first round to be nonviolent, to find ways. If they think they have an overmatch at artificial intelligence or an overmatch with cyber, and that's where I like, frankly, the way in which you use shielding so that we literally can't find them. And I think some people who criticize you for that had no clue what they were talking about, that you get into a world where we're relying on a certain range of electromagnetic spectrum, and they figure out a way to block that. And the same thing, of course, is true logistically. If they just take out our ability to find airfields. Absolutely reality and coming sooner than you think. And there's a reason in the book 2034, the first aircraft you see is a super tricked out eighth generation joint strike fighter. And the last airplane you see is an old beat up bucket of bolts, an old F-18 Hornet. The point is, you got to have the exquisite technology. You can't ignore that, but you better have a plan B if that exquisite technology fails you. And I'll put it another way. When I was a midshipman at Annapolis in 1976, they taught us how to use a sextant, and we navigated ships on paper charts. By the time I was the captain of a destroyer 20 years later, hey, that was basically gone. You know, there might have been a sextant sitting in a closet somewhere, but everything was electronic. 
Today, the Navy is back to teaching midshipmen how to navigate with a sextant and how to use a paper chart because you got to have a plan B. I remember there was a point, I think it was in the 80s, when a Soviet Foxbat defected. It was their highest performance fighter plane. And we were startled because it had vacuum tubes. Uh, But the reason, I think, in retrospect was they expected to go to EMP. And they expected to take out all of our aircraft on day one because they would have burned out, but the vacuum tubes wouldn't have. There are permutations here that are amazing. One other zone, if I could just for a minute, we began a fairly large NATO exercise, I assume designed as a signal to the Russians. Isn't one of our challenges that you could in fact end up with a Russian-Chinese collaboration that would be very close to an overmatch even now? Oh, absolutely. And again, in 2034, that's exactly what our predicate is. And by the way, I would throw into that mix, Mr. Speaker, Iran. I think Iran is going to continue to be very troublesome, and we already see them drawing closer and closer to China. But let's stay on Russia and China for a moment. It's like that old movie, Jerry Maguire. They complete each other. Here's a nation, Russia, with a declining population, vast landmass, huge natural resources in terms of raw materials. China, on the other hand, has a huge population, is actually quite geographically confined. Neither nation has many other allies. They're both authoritarian. And that is a sort of natural kind of pairing that's drawing closer and closer together. Throw out one caveat, which is that if I were advising Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin, I'd be saying, Mr. President, be careful. Be careful what you wish for in this relationship with China, because China looks at Siberia, this vast landmass the size of the United States of America. It only has 25 million people. So take the population of greater New York, that's it, and just spread it around. So nobody lives there, and it's full of what? Oil, gas, arable land, fresh water, raw material, timber, rare earths, diamonds, gold. China looks at that like my dog looks at a ribeye steak. It looks really good. And I think Russia is on its way to becoming a junior partner in that relationship. Aren't they likely to gradually accept Chinese economic penetration while trying desperately to avoid Chinese political control? Yes, and they will fail. They'll be forced to accept the former, and they'll have to live with the latter. The other part of that, this really requires us to really fundamentally restructure how we think about national security. One of the things you talk about is the notion that they would close down electricity in cities, they would close down ATMs. The shooting war hasn't started, but there's a lot of tension, and their first signal is, let's say, just to cut off ATMs. I'd be very curious how long the American public would tolerate that and whether their reaction would be cut a deal or go to war. And I think there'd be a huge fight internally between people who say, look, we can appease them, we can get past this, and by the way, I want my money, and a group that would say, you know, I'm not going to let them bully us, it'll just get worse, I'd rather fight. But my sense is we have a huge failure of imagination in 
how we do our education program for the military, the kind of war games we fight. I remember years ago, they used to fight the North Atlantic at the Global War Game at Newport, and they would never lose carriers. When Reagan came in, one of the things I got involved in was nagging them to actually, one, lose carriers, and they would always stop the game at about day 24 and have some miraculous negotiated deal. So I got them to agree that they could lose carriers and that we had to fight the game out to something like day 45. And they finally came to me after two years of doing this and insisted that I come up and play president for a oh, week. I remember. And as you remember, Harry Train, who was a great, very aggressive, very innovative four-star admiral, was my military advisor. And he said to me after the game was over, he had deliberately advised me to do the most radical things I could think of because he wanted the 500 people who were watching the game to realize you could end up with a president who's very aggressive yeah. and is the top of the chain of command. There was some strong pushback yeah. to some of the things I did. But I think the same thing ought to be true today. They should have to think about games that involve Russia, Iran, China. They should have to think about games that never go kinetic, that in fact are fought out in a series of very powerful technological ways that are aimed at crippling the civilian economy or crippling the capacity of the culture to function. And that would open up a huge Pandora's box of having to rethink our national security investments and our requirements. I completely agree. And by the way, in one of those nice little circles of life, four-star Harry Train, his daughter, Elizabeth Train, is now a two-star admiral and an intelligence officer. And by all accounts, is someone who pushes the system constantly. That's great. Yeah, it's, isn't it? I'm going to go look her up now. That'll be fun. Her father was a remarkable mentor to me for years on a whole range of topics involving the military. And also just a really good student of human beings and leader of people. I never met him. He has precisely the reputation you just yeah. described. Well, he's the kind of guy who, when he finally retired walked the Appalachian Trail to clear his head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just said, nice. I'm going to take six months off and go walk the trail. Yeah. It was great. I can't tell you how much fun this has been Indeed. and how great it is to reconnect uh, after all these years. And I do urge everybody listening to us to get 2034, a novel of the next world war. I think you will find it as sobering and as much a call to action as I did. And I think it's a significant contribution to our ability to really rethink where we are and sort of reset the system to be prepared for the wars of the future, not the wars of the past. And Jim, thank you for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to share these ideas with us. Mr. Speaker, what a pleasure. And I remember you as President of the United States when I was just a young officer. And let me tell you, there were many in the audience who said, we hope that comes true. <laughs> well, thank you. It was a great experience. It's a pleasure to be on with you, sir. Thank you to my guest, Admiral James Tavridis. You can get a link to order his new book, 2034, A Novel of the Next World War, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. 
Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.